This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, a podcast where we take a look at the interconnectedness of our medieval past, the stories it holds, and how these stories directly shaped the world we live in today. I'm your host, Jonathan. I want to thank everyone who's subscribing, downloading, and listening to the show, but a special thanks to those of you who are sharing it on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We're still seeing great growth, and so much of that is owed to you. Thank you. And don't forget to follow the link in the show notes to our new website, where you will get a regularly updated hub of episodes, blog posts, and links to various podcasting services and our Patreon page. This is our 13th episode of our third season of the podcast, a season focusing predominantly on the chaos that erupted following the death of Canute the Great. And I'm giving you a fair warning now, we cover a lot in this one, so buckle up because... Unbeknownst to just about every single soul at the time, the steady beat of drums have started just out of earshot during the decade leading up to 1066. I'm excited about the end of this season of the podcast, so let's get to it already. Today's episode, episode 47, is entitled The Distant Beat of Drums. I hope you enjoy the show. The year is 1016. And the king of Sweden wasn't exactly indifferent to the successful invasion of his ally, the brash young son of Swain Forkbeard. Ah, yes, Swain Forkbeard and King Olaf go back many years as they joined forces and were at the vanguard of the epic sea battle that saw to the end of the Norse legend and king, Olaf Tryggvason. But Swain's boy, the now king Canute, had just ushered in a sizable shift in the power structure of the North Sea, and King Olaf Skotkanund of Sweden must tread carefully so as not to draw too much unfavorable attention his way. Though Olaf and Canute shared a mother, brotherhood in the 11th century, it only went so far. Canute was already establishing his grip on England and setting his sights on Norway next. So he was put in quite a predicament when, nearing the end of the year, he received a curious gift from King Canute with strict orders to, well, do something with it, quickly and quietly. And he wasn't to play coy here. He knew exactly what it was that he was to do with this package. However, being an ally of of the old king, King Ethelred II, King Olaf Skotkanund couldn't quite bring himself to carry out the gruesome orders. I mean, it's just a woman with two boys. What kind of threat were they anyway? So King Olaf weighed his options. One, on the one hand, he carried out these orders to murder the boys. Then he stays in the good graces of his current neighbor, a neighbor who is definitely crazy enough to push into his kingdom at any given slight. Or, you know, on the other hand, if he doesn't carry out the orders to murder the boys, then he slides into Canute's burn book. These options weren't ideal, but in the end, he just couldn't murder them, so he chose to send them away, secretly, far, far away. He had options, as King Olaf of Sweden often considered the Swedish king to oversee the shift between pagan Viking Sweden and the Sweden of the Middle Ages proper, as he was Sweden's first Christian king. Well, King Olaf had made a lot of connections around Europe to that point. Obviously, anywhere in and around the North Sea was out, and at first glance, Kievan Rus might be a good place to send them, as his daughter Ingigerd, or as history knows her best, Saint Anna, 
was at the time married to Grand Prince Yaroslav the Wise, but there were still far too many connections between Scandinavia and Kiev, and his deed would be sniffed out pretty quickly, though some sources say they passed through Kiev to their ultimate destination, the new kingdom of Hungary, led by the prominent King Stephen I. And by 1018, this woman, Eldgith, and her two very young sons, Edward, named after his father's brother, and Edmund, named after his father, arrived at King Stephen's court seeking asylum far away from the purview of the powerful ruler of England and Denmark. They grew up in the Hungarian court, having but two languages, Hungarian and German, spoken through their entire lives. The records lose track of the boy's mother, Eldgith, by 1020, but scant records do give us a glimpse as to major events in both Edward's and Edmund's childhoods. When in 1028, Canute caught wind of these boys having survived after he sent them away to Sweden. Canute sent assassins to Hungary to deal with them once and for all. However, this fizzled out and the boys were safe enough. Either way, King, Steve, King Stephen secretly sent the boys to Kiev for safekeeping until things blew over, and he sent them there along with Stephen's own son, Prince Andrew. So it was between 1028 and the mid-1040s that Edward, Edmund, and Prince Andrew were growing up in the court of none other than, again, Yaroslav the Wise. And if you're playing along at home, you'll remember that this was the period of time that the young legend-to-be, Harold Sigurdsson, or as we learned last week, the future Harold Hardrada, would spend a few years in exile himself before moving on to take on the politics, war, and intrigue of Constantinople. Oh, and throw in no doubt a third language these boys, these two boys had in their belt, early Russian. And curiously, something not mentioned in the resources I've read was that they were raised in Latin Christianity, but then spent quite a few years in Eastern Orthodox territory. So there's an interesting dynamic to consider there too. By the early 1040s, the eldest boy, Edward, no longer a boy, mind you, had risen to a fair degree of prominence in the eyes of the Hungarian court and was seen as a source of prominence throughout his birthright. However, his little brother Edmund had apparently done himself no favors and ended up racking up debts and bad decisions, ousting him from any good favor in Hungary. But in 1046, with King Stephen dead seven years already and the kingdom of Hungary in a bit of unrest, Prince Andrew decided to raise a force and take the kingdom back. As the son of Stephen, he was the rightful heir. And who rode into battle with him on his successful bid to regain his family's prestige and royal title? Edward and Edmund, of course, as they had grown close to Andrew in the preceding years. For his efforts, Edward received his own castle, which naturally came with its own tsunami of benefits, including a wife. Her name was Agatha, and unfortunately just about nothing is known of her, so it's pure speculation when you hear of any parentage attributed to her. But we can, can safely assume that Agatha was most likely a daughter of either Hungarian nobility or, as Hungary was a vassal of the Holy Roman Emperor, she could have also been directly related to German nobility. Or even the Emperor himself. We just don't know for sure, but there's a good chance one of those uh, was the truth. 
No doubt, either way you look at it, Edward married up. And things seem to be really stacking up nicely for him. But all of that is nothing compared to the opportunity that opened up to him when he heard that the king of the land of his birthplace sought his return. In 1054, Archbishop Stigand of Canterbury is said to be the one who first presented the idea to King Edward back in England that an answer to the increasingly serious issue of succession was to invite a member of Edward's own family back home to receive the crown. It's an almost unbelievable turn of events, but that woman who brought her two sons to Hungary to escape Canute's wrath was none other than Eldgith, wife of Edmund Ironsides. And those two boys, Edward and Edmund, were Ironsides' own sons, making them King Edward's nephews. Thus, Edward the Exile, as history knows him, is the next viable candidate for the throne of England. It's crazy, right? But as it happened, King Edward's request was denied by Holy Roman Emperor Henry III, and Bishop Eldred of Worcester, the head of the delegation, came back empty-handed. But let's pause this narrative about Edward the Exile for a moment, because something happens in 1055 that is absolutely crucial to the overall story here. So in 1054, Earl Seward of Northumbria is said to have pushed his way into the chaos of Scotland as far as King Macbeth's homeland of Murray, the notorious highlands that have given generations of potential conquerors absolute fits. But he was on a bid, apparently backed by King Edward at that, to depose of this Macbeth and install the former king's eldest son, Malcolm Canmore, onto the throne. This might seem familiar to us. But again, Scotland's a tough, tough place to invade, and Earl Seward learned this firsthand. Seward's forces, though having made many inroads, were ultimately turned back by 1055. Seward's invasion was pretty much a dismal failure in the end. In that same year, Leofric of Mercia would be the sole earl of Canute's three most powerful earls. Godwin died in 1053, and now Seward, having succumbed to dysentery, died in 1055. Malcolm Canmore wouldn't give up his bid for the throne of Scotland, but he would have to do it without Seward now, or even his family in general. See, Seward left an heir named Waltheof, but Waltheof was not even a teenager yet, and thus unaccept, un, an unacceptable nominee for the earldom. Earl Harold of Wessex was ready to pounce at this opportunity, but remember, Queen Edith is back in the bedroom now, and she's bound and determined, after her husband's despicable behavior toward her recently, remember sending her to a nunnery and all, to elevate as many of her kin as she could to suffocate Edward's power in the kingdom. At least that's my take anyway. Next thing we know, Tostig Godwinson, Harold and Edith's brother, is elevated to Earl of Northumbria. But put a pin in that one for a minute, as that's a match made in hell if there ever was one. And we need time, we need the time to spend fleshing that whole situation out properly. But in those proceedings where Tostig was elevated to a major earldom, another event unfolded that is shrouded in a bit of mystery. See, Earl Elfgar of East Anglia, who was exiled once already, but earned his way back and took over Harold Godwinson's old earldom 
when Wessex opened up, well, Elfgar had established his seniority in the pecking order of English nobility. Elfgar, to be blunt about it, felt he deserved the much more prosperous and prominent Northumbria. And he sure let King Edward know, at least that's our best guess, because the E-Chronicle of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles actually says he was charged with treason by the king. The next thing we know, another English earl was exiled. That's right, Edward exiled Elfgar. And you'd think Edward would have learned by now that exiled earls, well, never really stayed exiled. Elfgar didn't disappoint either. Elfgar, like Harold, went to Dublin. And Elfgar, like Harold, mustered up himself a band of 18 ships full of Viking and Irish mercenaries. And he went where Elfgar was needed most. Wales, of course. See, King Gruffith ap Llewellyn was making his move on his namesake to the south, King Gruffith ap Rhaederc of South Wales. And it appears that Elfgar shows up in Wales right around the time two major things happen there. King Gruffith ap Llewellyn of the Hybarth defeats and kills King Gruffith ap Rhaederc and King Gruffith, now the king of all Wales, the first of its kind, mind you, defeated Earl's, Earl Ralph's forces, causing him to turn tail and escape and earning him the sobering nickname Ralph the Timid, which is never a good look for an Earl. This defeat of Earl Ralph resulted in something else, though. The absolute destruction of the town of Hereford. So yeah, Elfgar most definitely had his hands dirty there. In all that. But King Gruffith wasn't quite done yet, riding a wave of confidence after his consolidation of Wales, and subsequently neither was Elfgar, because we hear word that Earl Harold Godwinson received his first major command to deal with the ongoing Welsh problem. Now, in the past, Er, uh, Harold Godwinson had seen decent success against King Gruffith, but things had changed in recent years, and the Welsh were no longer a pest to be swatted away from time to time. They, under the leadership of King Gruffith ap Llewellyn, were serious contenders on the island now. And Harold's forces, well, they were forced to hang back and wait them out. What do I mean by wait them out? Well, see, Welsh customs dictated the terms in which a king can summon his army for like six weeks total or something like that. And that king, who called the levies, had to pay for everything too, which... Several weeks into this campaign to take South Wales and then invade England, well, it was starting to get a little expensive. But King Griffith was having an epic staring contest with Harold Godwinson, and with tensions rising in Northumbria, Harold blinked first. They met at Billingsley, hammered out a deal that made Earl Harold and King Edward look like absolute chumps, and then they parted ways. Another part of the treaty, besides Wales gaining land out of the deal, was Elfgar was readmitted to the kingdom, forgiven of all crimes against the king, and even given back the title of Earl of East Anglia, ousting Gerth Godwinson, who had supposedly taken his place during Elfgar's exile. I know, it's getting a little confusing. On February 10th, 1056, the Bishop of Hereford, most likely from a cocktail of injury, emotional heartache at watching his church burnt to ashes by the Welsh, and then stress, well, he died. 
and he was replaced by a peculiar choice of bishop, a man by the name of Leofgar. Leofgar was interesting because he was stern and militant, even sporting the mustache worn by soldiers in the 11th century. It's worth noting that many monks and bishops in those those days kept their faces clean-shaven or bearded, but not simply trimmed down to a mustache alone. A mustache meant a man of war, essentially. Leofgar was also the personal chaplain of Earl Harold Godwinson, so he was trusted with rebuilding the church and even defending his new homeland and surrounding territory. Well, it didn't take long for Leofgar to play out his role in the border wars, even though the role he played out was hardly what Harold and Edward had imagined for the bishop. Bishop Leofgar procured the support of the local sheriff, who then helped rally a small force around Herefordshire to raid Wales, yeah, thus breaking the tenuous peace there. Most likely, Leofgar was looking to take back Archenfield, a region the Welsh just took, while Leofgar failed, like badly failed. The sheriff died, and Leofgar himself died, and only a few actually made it back home. Griffith's men seemed to have had a little fun. But Leofgar's failed invasion, as sad and pathetic as it was, forced Harold Godwinson to meet with King Griffith again and renegotiate a new peace. Good news this time. King Griffith acknowledged King Edward as his overlord. However, King Edward was forced to finally recognize Wales as a unified kingdom. So Wales, yeah, not good for England at this point, but at least the powerful King Griffith is on the other side of Office Dyke dealing with a new kingdom of his own. So it's time for King Edward to get back to that whole finding an heir thing. And news that a new emperor just took over down on the continent. Which means King Edward had another shot at Edward the Exile. Earl Harold Godwinson, though having just taken a bit of a drumming in the peace negotiations with Elfgar's ally, King Griffith of Wales, Harold was seeking a W here. So in 1056, it's said that Harold traveled to the kingdom of Germany Germany, to meet with the new emperor. This meeting seemed to be much more successful, complete with rumors that Harold Godwinson even accompanied Pope Victor I to Rome, earning him major brownie points on the mainland, for sure. It also earned him a return trip by way of Hungary, where a certain nephew of King Edward's was living, again, as a Hungarian nobleman of Anglo-Saxon descent. But it's worth noting here that there were whispers that Edward the Exile wasn't exactly jumping up and down to return to England. In fact, Harold Godwinson's trip to Rome might have simply been a way of making himself useful and subsequently making more connections on the continent while he awaited word as to Edward the Exile's decision. Think about it. This guy was a baby when his mother arrived at King Stephen's court. He was, by every single relevant measure, Hungarian. This man was being asked to leave behind the only home he'd ever actually known, so that, what, he can return to a place that means next to nothing to him? A place that ignored him for four decades? A place that only cares about him because they happen to need a warm body of the line of Alfred? Really? What's in it for him? Either way, as it happened, Earl Harold received word that a quick stop off in modern-day Bavaria, where this son of Edmund Ironsides lived, was required. The exile was coming home. 
And almost heroically, Harold Godwinson arrived in London in either July or August of 1057 with the long-lost son of Ironsides, a man who'd already solidified himself in the lore and legend of Anglo-Saxon England a mere 40 years after his death. Young Edward and his family, having no clue as to what these strange northerners were even saying all around him, were no doubt put up pretty nicely and most likely lavishly welcomed, giving them a bit of relaxation before meeting King Edward. And just prior to this meeting, it turns out that Edward, the former exile, died within days of his arrival in England. Word had spread throughout England of the exile's return, however, just as England rejoiced in the solution to to the king's succession crisis seemed to have arrived, a collective ugh swept the kingdom. But wait, didn't the exile have a son of his own? Of course, young Edgar would be ready for the crown in 10 years' time, and there was even talk that should King Edward die before then, technically the next in line was actually Earl Ralph of Herefordshire, which would be a boon to old Count Eustache back in Boulogne. I mean, Ralph was known as the timid by this time, which didn't instill confidence among the nobility. And Ralph of Mantis wasn't, wasn't even of the House of Wessex, but he was still viable as an outside plug until Edgar could, could take the reins. Either way, they could still breathe a little sigh that things might still be okay should the king die pr- prematurely. Remember, King Edward was in his 50s at this point. But they shouldn't breathe too easily yet. So Edward the Exile died in August-ish of 1057, right? Well, a month later, on September 30th, the last of the of Canute's great earls, and thus the last remaining vestiges of a bygone era, Leofric, Earl of Mercia, died. The aftermath of this was fairly straightforward. Leofric's son, the recently exiled and returned Earl Elfgar of East Anglia, took over his father's earldom of Mercia, which opened up East Anglia for Gerth Godwinson to reassume that earldom. But 1057 wasn't finished with England quite yet either. On December 21st, Earl Ralph of Herefordshire also died. Yeah, there goes the succession crisis addendum the nobility had just taken out on King Edward's royal successor insurance policy. Now, it was more crucial than ever that two things happen. One, King Edward had to stay healthy for at least 10 years. And two, young Edgar must be made an ethling or crowned prince as soon as possible, and he must be raised to be a king every second over the next decade. There was also a very outside chance that Earl Ralph's infant, named Harold due to his apparently very close relationship with Harold Godwinson, could become a possible backup, as remember, Ralph was King Edward's nephew, so the connection was certainly there if he squinted just so. As for Earl Ralph's earldom of Herefordshire, well, it was crystal clear that Earl Elfgar of Mercia could neither be trusted to guard the border, I mean, the guy twice teamed up with the rising powerhouse of Wales, King Gruffith, nor could he establish an accepted assumption of Herefordshire due to the fact that just a couple years earlier, he assisted King Gruffith in trashing Hereford. The people would revolt the moment it happened, causing more trouble than it was worth. So that left Earl Harold of Wessex 
to assume the borderlands of Herefordshire to ensure King Griffith would somewhat be kept at bay. Very shortly after this, it's worth noting, King Edward interestingly raised young Leofwina Godwinson to become Earl of the eastern part of Herefordshire. So if you think about it, King Edward was essentially giving up on keeping the House of Godwin in check. In addition to Earl Elfgar of Mercia, England's other earls were now, of course, Earl Harold Godwinson of Wessex, Earl Leofwina Godwinson of what amounted to Kent, Middlesex, Hertford, and Surrey, Earl Gerth Godwinson of East Anglia, and Earl Tostig Godwinson of Northumbria. It's like an abundance of Godwinsons there. Yeah, Earl Elfgar was the only Earl in England not to be born of the late Earl Godwin of Wessex, and I doubt it slipped your minds, but let me just throw in that King Edward was married to arguably the most adept and savvy of all of them, the brilliant and beautiful Edith Swanneck. What was Elfgar to do? He was surrounded by Godwinsons and was essentially politically neutered, and it's not as if he and Harold or Tostig were exactly on good terms either. He had two friends, really. Well, nope, just one, King Gruffith of Wales. And he sought an alliance with the Welshman through his daughter, Alditha, in marriage. And King Gruffith accepted Alditha as his wife. And Elfgar's western border was officially secured. Elfgar must have walked past that trophy case in the halls of English nobility one too many times, glaring at the plaque proclaiming Swain Godwinson as the island's biggest failed son, because this move to establish an alliance with a known enemy of the state, again, this time through marriage, well, it landed Elfgar once again on the lamb. That's right, trigger-happy King Edward banished the Earl for a third time, thus fulfilling Elfgar's dream of getting his name on the plaque instead of Swain's. Well, there was only one place for Elfgar to run, right? Yeah, and as he entered King Griffith's court, word came of a Norse fleet taking a tour of the Scottish, Irish, Welsh, and English coastlines along the Irish Sea, led by a young man named Magnus. Now, Magnus had a bit of a reputation already, but this reputation as a successful warrior and raider wasn't what made him really stand out. Much to his dismay, I'm sure. No, Magnus came from interesting stock. See, Magnus's dad was King Harold III Sigurdsson of Norway. Yeah, Magnus Haraldsson was the son of the living legend, Harold Hardrada. So, England was in hot water due to Elfgar's banishment. Again. But this time, a Norseman of high stock was involved... And 1058 must have been an especially dismal year for England because the chroniclers of the Anglo-Saxon D Chronicles mentioned that I, that, and I quote, it was too tedious to describe the events of 1058. Yeah, England must have been hammered because by the time we hear anything solid, King Griffith was comfortably at home sleeping on stacks of loot. Magnus and his crew were joyfully singing all the way back home in, to Oslo and Elfgar was once again Earl of Mercia. And it was, by the end of 1058, England was once again settling into another brief period of peace, it seems. With King Edward's earldoms taken care of, 
his succession at least penciled in, and the Welsh king content across Office Dyke, the years of 1059 and 1060 seemed like a time to re-solidify relationships across the kingdom up and down the line of nobility, as well as allow the layman to do a bit of cleaning up and catching up in terms of rebuilding and regrowing. Harold Godwinson threw a kegger for the centuries during a church dedication in May of 1060, and we know how Anglo-Saxons like to party. And the earls were free to leave the battlefield to do some earling, like serving in shire courts and dining with local nobles whom they may not have had the chance to meet and establish a connection with due to the near-constant upheaval and recent jostlings of earldoms. Heck, Earls Tostig and Girth were able to slip away and accompany Eldred, the new Archbishop of York, to Rome to receive his pallium, and the only bit of commotion to happen while they were away was King Malcolm III of Scotland. Well, he did a bit of invading and raiding in Northumbria, but he very quickly withdrew when word of Tostig's return to England reached his ears. Did you catch that? King Malcolm III of Scotland. Yeah, so records are scarce, which is why I chose to introduce it this way. There's a whole lot of inferring when determining the exact course of events which led to Malcolm Canmore becoming King Malcolm III of Scotland. But here's what I understand to be widely accepted as true. Abbot Crinan of Dunkeld organized and rode at the head of a rebellion against King Macbeth in 1054, but it was a failed attempt. That same year, Lord Macduff of Fife, an enormously wealthy and influential Scottish clan leader, joined up with Malcolm Canmore, who had already been riding with Earl Seward of Northumbria, if you remember. And they defeated Macbeth's forces at Dunsinan Hill, a battle later remembered as the Battle of the Seven Sleepers. This was also the battle which saw the death of Seward's eldest son and heir, Osborne. After two more years of chasing Macbeth in and out of the veritable fortress that was Murray, punctuated by small skirmishes here and there, and without Earl Seward, mind you, remember he died, Malcolm and Macduff finally met Macbeth on the battlefield again in 1057 in Aberdeenshire, where Malcolm supposedly killed Macbeth with his own hands, though some sources say it was Macduff. Immediately, Macbeth's stepson and heir, Lulach, rushed to Scone, as was a favorite Scottish pastime in those days when the crown opened up, and he was crowned king. Wrapping it up here, on April 23, 1058, with a little bit of tomfoolery, it seems that Malcolm Canmore killed King Lulach in Aberdeenshire. Within days, Malcolm Canmore, son of the king, slain by Macbeth two decades earlier, was crowned king of Scotland. Now, what's going on in Scotland goes direct, does directly affect with what's happening uh, to the south, which is why Edward, back many years earlier, threw his support behind Malcolm Canmore. Why would Edward care so much about who was in charge of Scotland? Well, that's actually a very appropriate question here, because to be honest, it didn't exactly matter to Edward who was in charge, so long as whoever was in charge wasn't allowed to settle in and get his house in order. Macbeth murdered the previous king, Malcolm's father, King Duncan I, right? If Duncan had been without an heir, well, Macbeth might have done exactly what Edward feared. 
which would give him the elbow room to, you know, maybe start pestering those around him, like, say, Earl Seward of Northumbria. This could destabilize England's northern border, which is never good. So Malcolm Canmore it was, and it was a good bet for a while, actually, as Macbeth was far too busy trying to capture and murder Malcolm and his little brother Donald, instead of pestering his neighbors. However, as we'll see in the upcoming seasons of the podcast, though Malcolm III ushered in a stable-ish 35-year reign, he would actually become quite the thorn in England's side. So, back to it, as England welcomed in a new decade, the 1060s, things seemed to go off the rails right away, and not in an altogether bad way for them. For starters, Elfgar, the man who had given his king and his kingdom so many fits in recent years died. Yeah, no one really knows when, because, well, it just wasn't recorded for some reason. You'd think it would be, but, you know, a figure like him, an earl no less, would give a little shout-out in the annals. I mean, they even gave the tyrannical frat boy Harthacanute a few sentences. But Elfgar? He didn't get it. No love for Elfgar in, in the Chronicles. We know he was alive in 1058, and Mercia had a new earl by 1065. But historians widely accept 1061 to 62 as the most likely period that he died. And here's why. Christmas of 1062 was when the records say that Earl Harold Godwinson led a furious raid into northern Wales at a fortified town called Rudland. And with the tight bond through marriage between Earl Elfgar and King Griffith, well, England and Wales pretty much left each other alone for the last few years. So, the fact that Earl Harold did lead a raid into Wales is proof that Elfgar had most likely been dead by Christmas of 1062. Otherwise, Elfgar would most definitely have retaliated. Regardless, this risky ride over 100 miles into Wales territory resulted in Rudland being decimated and King Gruffith fleeing. Over the next year, Harold switched from quick, devastating cavalry attacks to naval raids along the coastlines of Wales, while his little brother Tostig harassed the Welsh by land. Each time Harold and Tostig thought they had King Gruffith dead to rights, the Welsh king slipped away. Eventually, though, King Gruffith and his warriors retreated to the treacherous hills and mountains of Snowdonia, where, in a fit of distrust by his own men who with the apparent death of Elfgar, well, they saw the writing on the wall. As far as these Welshmen were concerned, without Elfgar's insurance across the border, King Gruffith had caused England so many problems that Harold Godwinson's surprise raid might just be the tip of the English spear, and that Harold's and Tostig's constant harassment might be the new norm. It seemed endless, unrelenting. One man named Kinnan, son of Iago, hedged his bets and chopped Griffith's head off and then delivered it in person to Harold Godwinson as a peace offering. By late August of 1063, Griffith's severed head was on display in King Edward's court. Earl Harold Godwinson had received widespread popularity across the kingdom for quelling the first king of all Wales, which is no small matter, mind you. I hope no one underestimates King Griffith's accomplishments as Wales was hardly an easy place to to bring under one roof in the 11th century. And finally, England could take a deep breath. 
Also, by late 1063, King Edward most likely raised Elfgar's eldest son, Edwin, to the rank of Earl of Mercia. So the pieces are almost set for the culmination of King Edward's reign, and I'm, I'm not even going to sit here and tell you that I'm not excited to tell you how it plays out. I mean, it's 1063, and we've seen Harold Godwinson's rise to the pinnacle of English nobility. We've learned about the serious concerns with Edward's succession, and how every Englishman is praying that Edward can hold out to, until at least 1067, when the child of an exiled son of an Anglo-Saxon legend will be old enough to wear the crown. And we've watched the likes of William the Bastard and Harold Hardrada have consolidated their powers and become the top dogs of their domains. We have just one more chapter in this season's narrative to detail before we get to the clash that will define England's shift. As many historians describe it, out of the Dark Ages and into the High Middle Ages. And it's worth reflecting that King Edward's reign has been, let's be honest here, less about King Edward and more about the Godwin family. So it's fitting that the last chapter should revolve around one from that family. And it's about this time that if we all close our eyes and open our ears and listen really hard, that we can start to hear a faint phantom pounding of things to come echoing our way. The distant beat of drums of something just beyond earshot and just beyond anything that could even be fathomed by the people of the early 1060s. I hope you enjoyed today's episode about the rise and fall and rise and fall of Elfgar, as well as the death of King Griffith of Wales due to the relentless pressure of Harold Godwinson and his brother Tostig. Oh, and let's not forget about the Edward the Exile's journey back to England and how it would actually be his son, Edgar, to be groomed for the crown. Please keep sharing the show on your favorite podcasting service, and please don't forget to contact the show at fortuneswheelpodcast at gmail.com with topic suggestions, questions, concerns, and even corrections. The link to the new website is up and running, so head over there for the updated episodes and blogs and news and all that too. Also, please consider supporting the show on Patreon or Anchor or even just heading over to Apple Podcasts and leaving a five-star review. It goes a long way. Next week, again... We take a look at rough-and-tumble Northumbria and its embattled Earl, Tostig Godwinson. You know you can tell a lot about a person by how they spend their time, and I want to thank you for spending your time learning about our shared past here on Fortune's Wheel Podcast. Until next time. <laughs>